Computer, initialize Holosuite. From the darkest age of time, well, a primeval terror is unleashed. Deanna, what's happening? She is no longer human. And a deadly transformation has begun. I believe the crew is de-evolving. Now who will survive? How do we reverse the process? I'm uncertain. And who will fall victim to this savage nightmare? Next time on Star Trek The Next Generation. Welcome to Beyond Farpoint, a podcast in which we chat about everything Star Trek The Next Generation. We're your hosts, Jeff Owen and Baz Greenland. How are you doing today, Baz? I'm good, thanks. Looking forward to chatting about this interesting episode of The Next Gen. We mentioned this in the introductory episode about this being my guilty pleasure episode, and it's Genesis. There was a valid reason for picking Encounter at Farpoint as our first episode to look back. And I guess there's probably plenty of listeners thinking, okay, are they going to cover Best of Both Worlds, Yesterday's Enterprise, one of the movies? And no, we're going for Season 7, Episode Genesis, which is probably (laughs) a bit of a left-field choice, though, I think. But it's certainly an episode not as bad, I think, as its reputation that it has. No, exactly. I mean, yeah, the... The science behind it, you could say, is complete rubbish. And to be honest, you could probably claim that accusation against a lot of episodes of any era of Star Trek. But at the end of the day, it's it's something to hang a story on, which is obviously what they've done. And the one thing I'd say about Genesis is it happens right at the end of Next Generation's run. I think this is only about six or seven episodes from the end of the series and they've just basically decided let's see what we can do let's go a bit experimental they've gone full-on horror it is definitely one of the creepiest things that star trek has ever given us over the years yeah there's some real nasty moments in this episode some that i've forgotten about which we'll get get on to yeah it's it's when it goes horror it does go on full-on horror which i really like I'm i'm a massive massive horror movie fan and yeah I appreciate those moments in the episode when I rewatched it again. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not a big horror fan, but I do kind of like things when there's a science fiction twist to them. I'm a big fan of the alien movies, and I know they're more Mm -hmm. action than horror, but you've got things like Event Horizon and movies like that, and I really, really love those sorts of films. And when Star Trek did it, it was perfect for me. The only other episode I can think of that has probably got the same sort of creep factor is Voyager's Threshold, and that's not a bad episode in my eyes, apart from the last five minutes. <laughs> it's another episode with questionable science. Yeah, I, again, <laughs> I, I, I think I think there are far worse episodes in season two of Voyager than Threshold. There you go. That's another story. Yeah, just to go on a sidetrack for a moment, I'm always a big fan of episodes which, while they might be seen as rubbish, are incredibly fun, rather than episodes which are just boring, where it doesn't seem yeah, to go it's not anywhere. Boring. That's the one thing you can say about Threshold is it's definitely not a boring episode. <laughs> yeah, and same for Genesis. Yeah, I think Star Trek doesn't really go full on horror much. There's a couple of episodes, I think, more than like season five of DS9, when they go that kind of slasher movie horror with um, 
Impec Nor uh, springs to mind, which yes. I love um, probably for that reason because I love slasher movies. And I think Voyager maybe does a couple of times, but it, it's quite rare. I guess to do it well, I think you'll get things like Voyager again doing. Uh, there's an episode called Alice later on with this kind of evil sentient oh, yes. shuttlecraft. Yeah, and it's a and you kind of think you know are they kind of going off Stephen King's Christine or kind of going and it's but it's just absolutely naff in every way. <laughs> there's 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 nothing creepy about it. And I guess Genesis, as probably one of Star Trek's first real horror episodes, I think, is definitely creepy. Yeah, the original series did Cat's Paw, which was more comical than scary, mm. in all honesty. But the original series did some good proper horror episodes as well. And I'm not talking about the horror of The Way to Eden, which is a completely <laughs> different sort of horror. The only other thing I was thinking of, the only other episode of Star Trek that I was thinking of, which has probably got the same creep factor as this one is from Discovery, Context is for Kings, when they go to Discovery's sister ship and find the... What's the creature in that? They call it Ripper. Oh, yes. It's quite early on. It's quite an early episode, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. When uh, Burnham has to prove herself. But, yeah, they go on board the sister ship of the Discovery and find that some things just rampage through the ship, ripping members of the crew to bits. First time I've seen that sort of body horror in Star Trek, actually, because there's mm. some really vicious effects in that. But, anyway, we're, we're not here to talk about Discovery or Voyager, or the original series, for that matter. We're here to talk about Genesis today. And I've been looking through some details of this, and did you know this was... Gates McFadden's only screen directing credit. I knew she directed an episode. I didn't realise it was this one. Yes, yeah. yeah, it's the only one she has, isn't it, over the course of the show? It's over the course of her career, actually, because I've looked into really? her on IMDb and her directing credits, and this is her only directing credit. She has directed stage productions and musicals, and she is obviously a well-known stage choreographer and dance choreographer mm-hmm. in movies. But this is, this is the only time that she's ever directed an episode or a movie or anything for the screen. I, I guess it goes back to that kind of final season. You get, you get a lot of shows where you get like season seven and you get a bit more experimental. I guess Genesis kind of is in that respect, but also you get those actors who maybe have, you get some actors like LeVar Burton and Jonathan Frakes obviously had, have had a big directing career since as well. Mm. But you quite often get the other actors who want who are interested in dabbling in directing as well quite often uh, take an episode or so later on in the show. And I guess this was a, Gates McFadden's opportunity to have a go directing while there was still a show to a show on air. Yeah, exactly. And presumably that's the reason why she doesn't appear that much in the episode, because quite early on she gets attacked by Worf, which we'll come on to, and then she yeah. doesn't show up again until the very final scene of the episode. So that obviously freed her up to do a lot of the directing for the episode itself. It's quite a well-directed episode. There's a lot of atmosphere mm. in, the, in this episode. Oh yeah, it ramps the creep factor up all the way to 11. But where shall we start on this episode then, Baz? I guess, shall we start at the beginning? I guess you've got Barclay in his final next-gen appearance. I know he appears in First Contact and Voyager as well. We were talking a lot about Barclay in our last episode, Gemini, and the mental health one. Obviously, Barclay is a character that suffers mm-hmm. from anxiety and mental health struggles in the workplace. Yes. And... Obviously, he's come quite far away at this point in, in the show, but it's interesting to see that the anxiety um, manifests in, in, in a very different way of being a hypochondriac. And I really 
kind of found it amusing that he would take blurred vision, dizziness and palpitations and go, I've got Torelli and death syndrome. And like immediately, he's, he's one of those people that jumps to the worst case scenario, which is kind of a trait you've seen within Barkley before. But it's uh, it, it is interesting to sort of see him there kind of jump into the, the worst conclusion, particularly when you actually find out at the end of the episode, there's a, there's a kind of a bit of a twist around that and maybe he's not quite so paranoid as you be led to believe. Yeah, it's quite interesting as well because obviously when this came out, you didn't have the prevalence of online diagnosis that you, mm. that we get now. But I've seen people like Barclay who they get the smallest thing wrong with them and they're straight on Google going, oh my God, yeah. I've got Ebola or, or whatever. And suddenly, the, you know, they're absolutely convinced that they've got the worst thing on the planet. You know, COVID's notwithstanding, they, they, they're absolutely convinced that they've got leprosy or rabies. But yeah, it, it's, it's quite interesting how they actually manage to forecast people just self-diagnosing on Google and coming out with the worst <laughs> possible diagnosis. Yeah, Barclay leads the vision of the future there, definitely. I, I, I said anything <laughs> about, about it. It was quite fun seeing Crusher kind of basically play with, with Barclay. You know, you've got 70 or 80 years to live and kind of had a bit of fun with him as well. And mm. it's, it's, it's a nice bit of a character scene. You've got Riker there who's been in the holodeck and you've got Alyssa who's pregnant. And Data, who uh, Data wants to share his insights with her husband about being a father, because Spot's going to have cats, which kind of completely misses the point. But it, I guess, ultimately, it's not a particularly exciting pre-title sequence, considering what happens. It kind of feels a little bit oddly paced. I guess it's probably the one thing that maybe like the early scenes, the pacing does feel a little bit off early on, and maybe and maybe that's direction um, from Gates McFadden, or just maybe the script maybe isn't strong enough. But it's not particularly exciting opening hook for an episode i think no i know what you mean and um Riker seems a little bit out of character in that first scene as well i, I do quite find it amusing where he's talking about the incident in the arboretum he rolls over and he spikes himself and that does look really painful in his back as well yeah. and as Riker's going to leave crusher just stops him and says and don't go anywhere near the arboretum and it's like okay you've just told off the first officer of the ship but he sort of walks away suitably chastised with this sort of spoilt child look on his face as well i think it, it is the this is the characters they've they've known each other for years now and i think what the opening the opening scene is probably doing is showing kind of crusher and element dealing with with, with everything that comes her way i mean the day one interesting day, thing is crusher. What, yeah and I guess, I guess the one one thing you know she she's um she goes she goes from dealing with Barclay's um, symptoms to looking doing ultrasound for Spot. Are there vets in the Star Trek future, or do doctors just cover everyone, animal and human and obviously alien alike? Maybe she's come across a lot of Cations in the past and she knows what goes on in feline bodies but um i don't know yeah you've never, i don't think you've ever seen a vet in star trek but i guess if we're dealing with reptilian life forms and you know all the all these different, different uh, aliens on a weekly basis maybe maybe a cat isn't that far different i don't know yeah but look at flocks um he had everything in his sick bay in enterprise so it sort of stands to reason that by the time of dr crusher they're a bit more their medical knowledge is a bit more wider than just human beings. So 
Quite who knows, possibly. maybe some of the aliens that Crush has dealt with are very similar to animals, so it makes sense that they'd be able to treat animals as well. Maybe the gap isn't as big as it is now. No, sure. Did Spot look pregnant to you? No, I've, I had a cat that was pregnant and Spot didn't look pregnant at all. No, I, I think that bit, was yeah. a, a lot of the hiding of Spot's belly, to be honest, because Spot just looked like... Well, Spot just looked like Spot. Spot looked like this version of Spot that we've seen for the past few episodes and not the boy mm. cat or the completely different breed of cat that we've seen in earlier <laughs> seasons. But yes, Spot just looked like a normal female cat. There didn't seem to be any pregnancy there at all. What I did like about that scene is the um, the bringing in of Nurse Alyssa Agawa. You're seeing her for, a, for the first time as a full, well, junior lieutenant. She obviously announces that she's an expectant mother herself. And she steps up to the plate in this episode as well, acting on behalf of Dr. Crusher later on. Yeah, it's a nice little bit of development. I think um, with the Lower Decks episode, you saw a little bit more of her there. I think she was always just this kind of... I mean, we, we, we talked about it in our Q episode. There weren't that many recurring characters on the crew. I guess Nurse Agawa is probably one of the exceptions. Mm. I think she's even in like first contact, maybe. she. I think she does stick, stick with the uh, with Crusher for quite a while. We, we've had a little bit of development in this season with Lower Decks. It's not, again, it's nice to see her here. And again, she appears in all good things as well. So there's a there's certainly a bit of growth with, with the character. I mean, arguably, the pregnancy is also that convenient plot device to solve the issue at the end of the episode but uh maybe we'll leave that to later yeah but it does give greater gravitas to what happens to that baby come all good things not spoiling Mm. it just at the moment but yeah it's it's nice to see that this was the start of that little story arc of um Mm. agawa's baby and um i I have to say as well, having met Patty Yasutaki as well, I apologise if I've completely butchered the pronunciation of that name as well, but I met her at a convention a couple of years ago when she is every bit as lovely as Nurse Gower is as well. She's such a such a nice person. Oh, lovely. Obviously at this point they come across Reg's, I'll say illness, but they've just come up with some sort of condition that he's got and Crusher comes up with this idea of reactivating dormant cells to try and fight the condition, which may not have been a great idea, as we'll see later on in the episode. And things start to happen quite early on, because you've got Worf then losing the torpedo, which was very, very unlike Worf. Yes. That that whole scene after the TAR sequence, when they're doing that weapons upgrade testing, Worf seems so proud that he's, he's, he's done all this work. And he's increased the targeting system. Of course, it goes off course straight away. Yeah, you've got, you've got to kind of feel for Worf. He's usually top of his game. And um, there's yeah, definitely saying off, even before he, he turns into the monster that he becomes, you know, he, he, even early on, you, you definitely get a sense that maybe he's a, he's a Mr. Bow on this one. And and with Bev obviously causing the protomorphosis syndrome herself, you sort of think that everyone's a bit off their game, even before things start going badly wrong. And then the strange decision of Picard going looking for the torpedo it's for the reason of plot nothing else I think this is where the episode suffers I think actually it's very atmospheric and lots of great horror moments and some real fun stuff that comes up I think it's the writing that lets the episode down the the, the pre-title sequence doesn't really go anywhere even though it's obviously setting up stuff that's happened later on it's not done in a very exciting engaging way then you've got 
Picard and Data leave the ship for plot reasons because Data can't be on the ship because he wouldn't be affected and Picard's the other character trying to solve the mystery. So he leaves for that reason alone. It could be, and it could really be any character. Any one of, of the main cast members could have gone with Data and been there with Data several days later trying to solve what happened to the Enterprise. It's, it, it, it's very, very much a kind of a, a plot reason and nothing more, I think. Yeah, um, I kind of wish Data had stayed on the ship, actually, because I would like to have seen him regress to a pocket calculator. <laughs> yeah, it was... The whole bit at the beginning is pretty much let's get Picard and Data off the ship, and they say this mission could take a few days as well, so... Three days to retrieve... A torpedo. A missile. It does... A torpedo. It does seem a little bit contrived again, but but there you go. Data obviously leaves Spot in the care of Lieutenant Barclay. Which again is a bit, bit of a kind of meandering pacing early on. You, you go you go from... Suddenly they've lost his weapon. It could cause them havoc. Let's go and find it, but first... Let's stop off at Data's quarters to hand over the cat. It does feel a little bit, I guess, con- contrived, maybe. The pacing could be snappier on this episode, certainly. Yeah. Uh, I've got to be honest, though. I do quite like the um, day-to-dayness of these first few scenes, where it's like you're seeing the crew not reacting to an emergency. You're seeing, the- mm. you're seeing them doing routine stuff. You're seeing... Bev in her day-to-day job as a, as a as the chief medical officer, you're seeing Worf just doing weapons upgrades, and even when they lose it, it's oh, okay. Well, we'll go and find it, not knowing that anything is about to go completely nuts. Mm-hmm. And I do quite like that sort of seeing what the crew get up to when the ship isn't about to be destroyed by something. No, I, I absolutely do enjoy that character work. It, it's, it's, it's a, there are nice moments there for Crusher, particularly in those early early, early scenes. It's, I think it's just the way it's put together. Yeah. More more than... I, I, I do appreciate the scenes. And even when things start to get a little bit odd and you see characters kind of going through their routine but not being on, the, on their game, it, it is a lovely insight into the crew who have been together for years and years at this point as well. And you know they are they are friends as much as colleagues as well, and and it is nice to see. I think it's just it could have been constructed in a better manner. I think. Yeah, absolutely. And then the crew start to change. Yes, I love I love Worf when when he, when he gets grumpy. <laughs> yeah, and I, I I always wonder you you almost if you didn't know what was coming you think are they going for a comedy episode here. But it's not funny enough, and it's a little bit odd. I don't know. Maybe this is where maybe it doesn't quite ring true. You get things like Worf snapping at Riker, which would never happen. But there's no big dramatic reason for it to happen, mm. and they're not going full on comedy, so it sits somewhere in between. And I think, in one sense, as things mount up, it does build the mystery of what's what's going wrong here, and that, and that works quite well. But I think it's just trying to find that. It's nothing. There's nothing dramatic to hook the oddities on, and yet it's not really going the comedy angle either. Which if you had the comedy angle, maybe yeah, maybe the comedy into the whole it wouldn't have worked um, quite so well. But it, they are as as, in, as as fun as they are to see. They're also a little bit odd for a next-gen episode. Maybe this week it's a bit more experimental. Yeah, I know what you mean, actually. Um, because you get the moment in 10 Forwards where Worf is obviously there with that massive pile of food which looks disgusting. The octopus. The, yeah, the octopus yeah. tentacle sort of on the top of it. 
Deanna turning up yeah, ordering uh... caviar because she wants something salty. Thanks for waiting. Do not approach me unannounced, especially when I'm eating. We were supposed to be having lunch together, remember? I was hungry. Well, I'm hungry too. Excuse me. Yes. Could I have an order of Anzillan caviar? Make that a double order. Certainly. Caviar for lunch. I'm in the mood for something salty. Besides, it's no stranger than what you're eating. Have you noticed how dry the air is on the ship? I wonder if the environmental controls are set properly. <coughs> You're excused. Here you go. Mm. Is something wrong? It's been a difficult day. The torpedo guidance system failed. It was my fault. You always say that. It was my fault. I designed that guidance system. Worf, calm down. I think you're under more stress than you'd like to admit. Maybe you should get some rest. Perhaps you were right. If you will excuse me. Didn't mean right now. Yeah. I love Wars line. Do not approach me unannounced, especially when I'm eating. <laughs> I think everyone should use that line. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. Let out that massive belch as well. And Deanna just looks at him and goes, You're excused while he's leering at the ten forward waitress. I saw that. I thought, yeah, that that was weird. I mean we, we talked about it in uh, briefly in the All Good Things discussion of our Q podcast, but the whole Worf and Troy relationship is weird anyway. Yeah. I like the connection, but them as a couple doesn't work at all. And I guess this is probably one of the only scenes before All Good Things where you kind of see them as a couple. And... Apart from Parallels, which is obviously not oh, yeah, really parallels, them. Yeah. That sets it, that sets it up. Yeah. That suggests they are a couple. Then this is the only time really in between, I think, where you see them generally just as a couple of the early days of their relationship, except it's all gone wrong. And you've got Worf, Oglin, a waitress. This is the probably the only episode where you kind of really see them as a couple. And it doesn't work for me at all. Um, I'm just looking, actually, for the episode sort of around this. I mean, you do kind of see them as an episode in Emergence, which is the one where the Enterprise takes on a life of its own but other than that no there's nothing really after parallels actually there was either the episode before this is either beholder i think that's when they start their relationship yeah that's right i guess the trouble is you haven't seen enough of them this is thing that star trek and next gen particularly has done several times when they try and show something not working before you've seen it mm. working it goes the way back to like the um naked now the naked now Second episode, you can't show characters out of character before you know what their characters even are. Yeah. Doesn't work. And I guess this, this is this is like that. We, you, if you've seen Worf and Troy having lunch together before, 
as a kind of a, 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 the early days of being a couple, then things being off would be probably more entertainer, more noticeable. Yeah. But it's just it's almost like they're just two two friends who have decided to have lunch together. Worf's being aggressive, he's leering at this waitress, and then Troy is getting a craving for salty caviar. And while it's all getting about setting up things being very, very wrong, it doesn't necessarily have the impact it should do. Aside from Worf's brilliant line and the devouring of the octopus, which I think is quite entertaining. <laughs> Obviously, you then start to see Reg becoming completely over-the-top hyperactive and eager mm-hmm. to do anything. Um and Riker and Geordie start becoming really tired and slow-moving. Riker even mm. forgets what he's doing at times as well. Geordie ends up in that Jeffrey's tube with Barkley, and Barkley's ripping this thing off the panel, um, just going straight for it, trying to fix the problem, and Geordie just wants to sit there and watch him, and you just know that something yeah. is starting to happen as well at this point. And you've got the corroded bulkhead there as yes. well. I was thinking, this might be the perfect opportunity for the Xenomorph to get for me. <laughs> that was exactly my <laughs> thought as well. Yeah. yeah, all I could think of was, yeah, when's the alien appearing? Definitely. You get the scene in the conference room as well, and it's really, really quick, but if you spot it, it's such a nice little scene as well. At the moment where Nursegawa leaves... I don't know if you've noticed it as well. When she's yeah, walking, the way she lumbers away. Yeah, she lumbers yeah. away. She's using her fists on the conference table to push herself away. I thought that was a great little bit of mm. foresight into what's coming up. Yeah, there's some really clever little moments and little, clever little bits of direction from, from McFadden, I think, that do work. While the overall pacing isn't, isn't there, I think the little hints of something being... The hints of them devolving... Um, data keeps calling it de-evolving now the word is devolving that's what you need to say <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah there uh, is I, I guess it's trouble is it's, it's maybe it's too subtle maybe that's the problem it's not sinister enough uh, it's not funny enough it's just a little bit in the it's weird the whole thing with Troy decides to leave her command post on the bridge to go and have a bath yeah I get something odd's happening but it's just it's weird but not necessarily in a I don't say believable way because there isn't much believable about the science of the no. episode, but it's uh, it it just feels a little bit too out of character, even at that point. Yeah, well, Worf is sort of in command. Uh, no, sorry, Worf isn't in command. Deanna's in command, and this is the first time that we've seen her take a command um, role on the ship since she got the command pips, really, mm-hmm. from the Pegasus. So she's obviously being given command positions now. And it was nice to see, actually, seeing Deanna in yeah. uh, in command of the ship. I was watching a deleted scene of the episode as well, just before we started recording today. And mm. you probably haven't seen it, because I know you um, you Netflix the episodes as opposed to... I Netflix the yeah. episodes, yeah. Well, the deleted scene is a very short, sort of 40-second scene. And it's Riker coming back onto the bridge just after Deanna has left the bridge to go and have a bath. And uh, Riker walks on and goes, oh, where's Deanna? And he says, oh, she's gone for a bath. A bath? Wolf then says, permission to leave, I'm not feeling well. I says, yeah, go ahead. So he goes off, he's growling as he's leaving the bridge, and that's when it picks up then, where he's then at the front of the bridge, and about the only uh, guest actor that's in the episode says, oh, we've got a message from Starfleet saying, how are the weapons testing going? 
weapons testing. Yes, yeah. And and that's the moment where he starts getting really confused about what they're doing. The other thing as well I've got to mention is the scene with Worf in his quarters trying to sleep. Going all feral, yeah. Are his pyjamas made of tweed? <laughs> I know he's a Klingon. Well, he's, yeah. But they don't look... Animal, animal furs and tweeds. Yeah, they don't look like the yeah. most comfortable of bedwear. Well, this is the thing. Watching Next Generation era Star Trek, nothing anyone wears. Why does everyone wear jumpsuits and weird waistcoats and the fashion of out of out of the out, out of uniform mm. is just off every single character. It's weird leather pants and waistcoats and jumpsuits, and none of it is flattering. No, and it's just yeah, I, I, I don't get it. So yeah, maybe. Maybe it's the Klingon way, maybe it's a Starfleet way, maybe maybe tweed pyjamas are the way to go in the 24th century. <laughs> they did make me laugh, and uh, again, it was a, it's one of those moments in the episode where you, you're not meant to laugh because you're meant to be wondering, why is he having problems sleeping? Why is he ripping his bed to bits? And all I could think of every time I watched that scene is, why are his pyjamas made of tweed? <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, sorry. <laughs> then... Obviously, things go badly wrong. Worf ends up in sick bay. Well, first he attacks Troy in the bar. Yes, sorry. Um, yeah, that which is, which is the first moment that's kind of really nasty. Yeah, I think in the episode where Troy's in the bath, everything's very humid because she's turned up the temperature, and then Worf Worf attacks her, and yeah, it, it it's really creepy, and I think very well done because even though things are happening out of character, it's. There's nothing to suggest it's potentially like dangerous yet. It's kind of comical, would not being funny enough, but it's it's, it's all a little bit odd. And suddenly, Worf attacking Troy yeah. in the bar from Bitener is a kind of quite a shocking moment, I think. And it's the first of several, I think, that happens over the course of the episode. Yeah, especially when you see the work that they've done to Troy's face in Sick Bay afterwards, mm. where you see the stitches. And I think it looked even more horrific in HD. It did. But yeah, it is the first shocking moment of the episode, you're right. Yeah, followed very quickly by what happens to Crusher as well. Yeah, immediately afterwards. And the description they give as well, where they say, oh, she's going to need major reconstructive surgery. And you just think... So you get the sense of face is just melted off. Yeah. It's, it's horrible. It really, really, really is horrible. The idea he um, he spits venom from his venom sacks in her face. Yeah. And you get, kind of, you get the scream as she covers her face with her hands, but... Yeah, the, the the actual description of it is really, really nasty. And then you find out this is obviously what's been found around the ship in the Jeffreys tubes, all of these venom burns. So you think, you think yeah, so War's been marking his territory across the ship. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Makes you wonder, though, why he ends up. Because obviously he's still, he's not the beast at this point. He's still Klingon. He's still got yeah. some control of himself. Why is he going in the Jeffreys tubes? Why is he going in these other places and burning them. I don't I think this way it doesn't make sense. I think it's a lot of odd moments and a couple of nasty moments which do create a sense of unease of, you know, something odd is happening here, but it could be put together better. And it does and that is the script I think is what lets this episode down more than anything else. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. And why Wolf would be marking his territory by spitting acid in Jeffrey's tubes doesn't really make sense at this stage because he's still 
for the most part, function in Starfleet officer. Yeah. I've just had an idea of how they could have explained that away quite easily. Because Alexander, presumably, is still on the ship at this point, is he? Mm. Yeah, I think so. Um, they could have just had a line saying that Alexander, uh, they found out that Alexander's got the same thing, and he's been de-evolving he's quicker. Machine, yeah. But um, but yeah, it, it... which yeah, it makes you wonder. Yeah, you you, you get a sense later on that Warp's been just killing people left, right, and centre, and, and stalking the ship. But maybe it's Alexander too, and you just don't don't realise yeah. that that's the. Uh... It's one of those episodes that forgets Alexander's there, and given what happens to Worf, mm. I know Alexander has you know, quarter human DNA because his mum was half human, but Bedon is going to be Klingon. Yeah. So unless that human reverting DNA nonsense science happens in the episode means that, that humans become more dominant you would think that what's happening to Worf is happening to, to Alexander possibly in the classroom full of kids and yeah. who knows how that's going to be yeah. that, that, that's the one thing Gemini in our last episode we were talking about mental health and trauma the trauma these characters unless they don't remember a thing you know the trauma they go through in this episode is, is horrific and probably the amount of dead people on the ship afterwards as well. It's a uh, and yet no mention of it. Yeah, Doctor Crusher goes round after every major incident, making them forget everything. So <laughs> that's the way. <laughs> that is pretty much it for the prelude to what goes on, mm. and then we jump to the shuttlecraft, and we see yes. Picard and Data returning to the Enterprise, but finding it not at the scheduled coordinates. So they start looking mm. for it. And finding it in a lovely effect, actually, of the Enterprise just slowly spinning in space. I thought that was a nice mm. nice effect for that one. It is, but it does make you wonder. Space isn't 2D, it's been said before, so they seem to have like trouble trying to match the axis of the ship. I guess maybe it's spinning, but surely ships should approach you know, upside down, left, right, all over the place. It shouldn't necessarily... Ships don't approach you know, face-to-face. They, 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 go, they approach each other from all angles, so... Obviously, why it looks very cool that the Enterprise is kind of upside down, that doesn't necessarily mean to another ship it should look any different. I've always got this idea that part of any communication with another ship that you're familiar with is sort of like, um, it, you know, it, it's sort of an unwritten thing that you tell them which way up you're arriving so they can mm. rotate their ship accordingly. So I, I don't think that would make very interesting dialogue uh, in an episode, it's sort of like yeah, <laughs> no. it's one of those things like how do, how does gravity work and how do computers communicate with each other? It's just sort of an unwritten bit of dialogue, but you assume that it works. Yeah. They then have to line up the ship, play in elite to dock with the spaceship, uh, the space station, and uh, and come aboard the ship, and they start realizing things are wrong. Yeah, I think mean, this is this is really great direction here. It looks so the, the dark cargo bay and the kind of the corridors um, all unlit. They look fantastic because you know actually, in one sense, it's, it's actually a bottle episode. It's just episode on, on the ship. Nothing. There's nothing else. And for what is a bottle episode, it's very well done. It looks really atmospheric, and there is a real sense of danger and the unease going on to the Enterprise from Data and Picard's point of view. Yeah, very small guest cast as well, um, to add to the bottle episode's nature of it as well, because obviously you've got Dwight Schultz as Lieutenant Barkley, you've got Patty Asataki mm. as Lieutenant Agawa. The only unusual one there is Ensign Dern, who doesn't really mm. show up before, and 
obviously doesn't show up again afterwards. <laughs> no. Uh, and Major Barrett as the computer voice, and that is the entire guest cast, apart from obviously all of the uncredited extras, including the always wonderful Tracy Coco. Definitely. It's, I guess, and this, this is where I think it's effective. It's sometimes episodes that are very much ship bound. Um, I said that right, that ship I was wondering. Are, <laughs> I said that right. They are, they can look a little bit like they obviously save money. And it doesn't look like they save money with this episode at all. Particularly when it comes to the effects later on as well that we, we're going to talk about in a moment. It is very, very well done. It, it looks special yeah. in terms of how the story evolves even though it is a just a, a enterprise-based episode. Well, Brannon Braga, the writer of the episode, as you might have guessed from the pure psych- yes, he does <laughs> from the pure psychotic nature of the episode, <laughs> he gave them a lot yeah. of lead time apparently on the episode, so they could get all the effects and makeup and everything sorted, ready for the episode. And that's where this episode really pulls it out of the bag: are the makeup effects that are coming up next? Yeah. So, of course, you get reptilian human skin shed in the corridors, which is creepy enough. And then you get to Troy's quarters as well. And I think uh, that's an interesting piece of uh, makeup there, seeing the amphibian Troy in the bath. Yeah, with gills. And still with the injury to her face as well. Considering what comes later, quite a low-key special effect and makeup effect as well for Deanna. Oh, definitely. Yeah, straight after that, you get the... The aforementioned dead crew member on the bridge, who also suffers a pretty horrific uh, and violent death. He's a uh, chest ripped open and his uh, spinal cord broken in three places. And it looked like he was already going in some sort of transformation mm. as well, but obviously he was killed long before then. And then they hear a noise coming from the ready room, and it... they come across two characters in here that have de evolved. Obviously, Riker, but did he spot the other one? No, was it the fish? <laughs> I don't know. The fish. <laughs> the fi- um, Picard's lionfish Livingstone has become a jellyfish. Ah, I did not know that. Yes. Go back and watch it again and you'll see that there's a jellyfish in there instead of the lionfish. Who think it's eaten by Neanderthal Riker? Looks think... like it, yeah. Yeah, it looks like it. Yeah. <laughs> but Neanderthal Riker is, is scary. It's, it's, the, it's the beard and the hair that's just gone crazy as well isn't it it's it's, uh, it's quite it's yeah, quite fun the massive forehead and the overbrow and um yeah and the pure lack of intelligence there it's a really good build up which i think you know and the, and, the, and the i think the the best example of a crew de-evolving it makes no scientific sense whatsoever but barclay in engineering is fantastic that is real full-on the fly style horror I can repair the damaged plasma vent from here. I'm gonna check the status of the warp core. Lieutenant Barclay. 
He appeared to be partially transformed into an arachnid. A spider? Yes, sir. Are you all right, Captain? I have these intense feelings of fear and panic. Yeah, I was reading as well from the uh, Star Trek The Next Generation Companion. Apparently they wanted him to drop from above. They wanted him to have the, the spider's web and come down from above. Gates McFadden wanted to do it as directing. Dwight Schultz apparently was well up for the stunt mm. as well, but they just couldn't get the budget together to allow for it. So, Still, um, it's, a, it's a really good jump scare moment, though, when he appears oh, yeah. on the other side. Yeah, that's, that's, that's great. I mean, that, that, that is my favourite. You know, I, I love proper horror, and I think that, for me, is my favourite part of the episode. It, it is really nasty, but very, very well done. Yeah, according to the write-up for the episode, one of the people involved, Peter Lauritsen, who is who was one of the executive producers on the show at the time, he knew it was coming. He still jumped out of his seat at the preview. <laughs> so uh, yeah, you know you've got it uh, right then when you get somebody that ex- that's expecting it. And it as still well. works. Yeah, it's a real great moment. I think uh, that alone is worth the episode. I think um, yes, every horror fan should should appreciate that moment. Doesn't make any sense. Why would he de-evolve into a spider? But I guess this is the point in the episode when we, we get onto the uh, inverted commas. The science of the episode. What are your thoughts on the Inton virus? What science? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as I said right at the beginning, if you start analysing the science of this episode, you're not going to enjoy it. Yes, I know with science fiction, you have to have something plausible to hang it on. But I think sometimes, as long as you've got a good story, I don't really so much mind if the if the science itself doesn't make sense. As long as it seems plausible, mm. even if it's not properly real. The the one I can think of the most is Space 1999. There is no way what happens on the moon would cause it to jump out of its orbit. And yet <laughs> that's what they've based an entire series from. So, you know, if if you've got something plausible, and as long as you've got the story to follow it up with, I don't really mind bad science. Yeah. Um, I, I think this is you. why Genesis gets a bad rap, actually, because yeah. of the, the science makes no sense whatsoever. I was watching it with Jeremy and Jim, oh, God, I hate this episode. And the reason why is because I think it just doesn't make any sense. I think you can understand Riker being a Neanderthal, you can understand maybe war for that kind of proto-Klingon monstrosity that it becomes. But then, like, why does Spot become a lizard? Why does Barkley become a spider? It doesn't really make any sense. And it's probably good that they didn't show too many characters. I think you won't, the only other character you see is Agawa, um, who becomes a kind of primate itself. And that's going to be a bit yeah. more understandable. So Spot, a cow as a cat, become a lizard. I, I, I don't know. The other one as well is Picard apparently is uh, meant to become a lemur or a marmoset Marmoset. or something. (laughs) As much I would like to see marmoset Picard. (laughs) It doesn't make any (laughs) sense whatsoever. Yeah, uh, Memory Alpha's got a list of all of the transformations that take place in the episode. And you've got the crew member who's de-evolved into a humanoid who shed his or her skin like a mm. snake. So have they become yes. some, some sort of reptile themselves? Yeah. Dern, who had begun to de-evolve but didn't obviously complete it. Deanna Troy into an amphibian, which may very well be where Betazoid life came from. We yeah. don't know. 
Riker, who devolved into an Australopithecine. Livingstone became a jellyfish. Picard was going to become a lemur or a pygmy marmoset. Spot became a lizard. Barkley became a spider. Ogawa had become an ape. And Worf had devolved into a prehistoric proto-Klingon, which was frankly terrifying. Yeah, that whole... Obviously, once you get the whole idea of the amniotic fluid from that they discover Spot's kittens weren't affected and you find out that Nurse Agawa's unborn baby is also unaffected. They they, they yeah. recognise that that's the way to find the cure. But of course why Data has to do that, Worf has to face off against Proto Worf on the yeah, that there there's some great, great stuff there. Yeah, Picard's obviously who is becoming more and more terrified. Yeah, Patrick Stewart is a really good performance. You get that sense of he's still Picard, but he's a little bit more nervous and a little bit more anxious, and you get that sense of trying to kind of fight down the terror as he does his job. Yeah, and you can definitely tell that you know he is becoming something else because mm. he is clearly not the Picard we know, but no. he is very, very scared of facing off against this creature in such a confined environment by fighting down Worf and electrocuting him. Yeah. They do a very good job, I think, with Worf of not showing him free. They keep a lot of him to shadow. So you get glimpses of this monster, but I think mm. probably wouldn't have been as effective if you just saw him in bright light stalking Picard down a corridor. So I think he does work quite well. That scene when he when they're actually in the Jeffrey's tube together and he electrocutes Worf is is great because you know that that you really get a sense of Worf is this terrifying, terrifying creature. And you have to wonder how many people has Worf killed. Do you reckon when they went back to normal, it was like walking down the uh, walking down the corridor and a crewman would give Worf a dirty look because he killed his best friend or he killed his mum? Or... <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. they don't Worf, really... Worf is responsible for 48 deaths, but hey, it's fine, we'll move on. It's that thing about Star Trek as well because um, we see it happen in Discovery later where we find out that Ash Tyler is really Vok and there's all this thing later on about oh you know do we still trust Ash Tyler you've got to think with this sort of thing happening on the Enterprise would there be crew members going well I don't know if I trust Worf anymore I don't Mm. know if you know he's he's killed people there's got to be that I I think you're right I think it's a crush of memory wipe going on it's the only way Mm. to uh, to (laughs) get around it Apparently, even though we call this a bit of a guilty pleasure, it has come up quite highly in surveys in the past about Star Trek. This episode even won an Emmy Award. I don't know if you know that as well. For for what? For makeup? For sound mixing. It was nominated for Outstanding Individual Achievement in Sound Editing for a Series and Outstanding Individual Achievement in Makeup for a Series. But yeah, it picked up the Emmy Award for Outstanding Individual Achievement in Sound Mixing for a Drama Series. So what we have here is an Emmy Award winning episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. What culture called this episode the seventh best episode of all time in Star Trek back in 2015? I wouldn't agree with what culture there, but... uh... It's a better episode than, I think, its reputation. In 2017, IO9 uh, noted Genesis for being one of the more bizarre science fiction stories of the franchise. Well, that much is true. Definitely. And in 2018, The Gamer ranked this as one of the top 25 creepiest episodes of all Star Trek, which I've got to agree with. I agree, yeah. Spider Barkley alone gets that nomination, yeah. Yeah. I think it's, um, yeah, it's very effective. It's very memorable. It's certainly not a boring episode. And I think... 
There is a sense with season seven of Next Generation. There was a little bit of lethargy going into it that I think maybe they they done their best work and they had the movies on their way. So mm. some episodes of, of season seven, you either get more experimental ones like this or Masks. Um, or or you, uh, Yeah, definitely. Or quite a few season seven episodes just kind of fade into the background. But this one certainly doesn't. This one is, is memorable and it's fun. Yeah. And there are there is great horror. I say the script is. I know Brennan Braga likes his horror. He does a horror. Actually, he does a bit of horror in, in Voyager. I think you see a lot of this in Voyager. But him and Hans Beimler are are, are no sorry. Um, is it Hans Beimler or Mike Suskind? Uh, either of those. They like their um, they like their more extreme episodes of Voyager later yeah. on. Yeah, yeah. You get a few. You get a few. I think Voyager does go a bit more the extreme. Um, mm. But it the script doesn't make sense. The science doesn't make sense. The devolving doesn't make any sense. Nope. But it's but it but it's fun and it has some some very yeah, some great atmospheric moments. So yeah, I, I I enjoy it. If I was to pick a handful of episodes from season seven, Genesis would definitely be on there. It's high praise because you have still got episodes like the Pegasus and parallels. You know, there are some really good episodes of Season 7, but then you've got episodes like Eye of the Beholder, which I'm not a great fan of, and Journey's End, and Bloodlines. And, and Subrosa. Hey, there's nothing wrong with... <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't do that seriously. Good, good. <laughs> I was worried that I thought, well, this is where the podcast ends, and if, if Subrosa is, uh, is not on the worst list. Actually, talking of it, talking about... Rankins, um, Genesis received Star Trek 101 Spock's Brain Award for the worst episode in TNG. I don't agree with that. I think there are so many, many, many episodes that are worse than Genesis. Genesis isn't even a bad episode. It's not a great episode. It's a middling episode because great, great effects, great, great horror, crap script. <laughs> but it's uh, certainly, you know, there's nothing on the lines of Code of Honor or Justice or Shades of Grey, or the aforementioned Sub-Rosa, so... Uh... <laughs> yeah. Obviously, I, you know I like this episode. It's not top 10 episode for me, but it's definitely, I'd say, in my top 25 episodes. One yes. that I would quite happily put in the player and watch any time. But, um, yeah, it's, it's not top 10. It's not a Yesterday's Enterprise or Best of Both no. Worlds. But it's not the Premier League, it's the Championship for me. <laughs> Fair enough, then. This will be interesting now with scoring. So the last time we scored an episode, it was, it was Encounter at Farpoint. You gave it a six, I gave it a seven. I'm going to go... It's a hard one. Some bits I really don't like, some bits I like. I think it's a seven. I know the science turns the science I, I think, you want. I think it's... it's if we, When you go on full on horror, Spider Barkley gets a nine out of ten for me. The actual science mm. of why Barkley's a spider gets a two out of ten. <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> that, that, that's the level I'm working at here. So I, I, I think it's a seven. I, I think it's a terrible script, but very, very atmospheric and quite fun. Maybe a, yeah. or six point five seven. There you go, six point five. If that if I can do a half point. I actually thought you were going to go a lot lower. I I was expecting a four or a five no. um, out of you then, but I'm going to give this an eight to an eight and a half. Oh, not quite there yet. Oh. I'm six and a half to a seven. You're eight to eight and a half. Okay, well, mm. there, there's a, it's not quite a big divide as uh, some people might have. I think. That's about an average of a seven and a half, isn't it? For That's fair enough. Yeah. I can, I can live with a seven and a half for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. So that 
Genesis, or at least our take on it. Did we get any thoughts from anyone else in Genesis? I think we've pretty much covered everything we want to say about the episode, haven't we? But was there any? I know we kind of reached out on uh, Facebook and Twitter to see if anyone had any comments. Yeah, we didn't get anything back on Twitter, but we did only post the question yesterday, yeah. so we didn't really get much. Uh, we did get a couple of comments on Facebook. One from Kai, who just basically said he hadn't seen it in so long, so couldn't contribute. Right, Kai, get watching it now. Yeah, so Kai, you, you've got to watch this episode now and tell us afterwards what you think. But Matthew Bull, I think, pretty much summed up what you said. His quote is, Personally, I think this is the best horror episode of Star Trek. I love it in spite of the bunk science, especially around Halloween. And he's posted a link in our nexus facebook page which is the holosuite media's listener listeners community which is a great place to go to actually if you want to talk about any of the episodes across any of holosuite media he's posted a link to his review of the episode which i will go and check out myself yeah we'll do what have we got coming up next then so we are going to talk about the work of ronald d moore who obviously started out on the next generation yeah he obviously went on to i was going to say bigger and better things but star trek is big and brilliant itself i think you'd probably argue that battlestar is is where he was at the top of his game but i think his work on ds9 and next generation is great and and actually i think people tend to think a lot of ds9 Mm. work was where he was at but actually i think next generation he produced produced some great episodes and i think it'd be uh good to talk about those next time mr klingon he sort of gave us a lot of the klingon um, klingon empire story but we're not going to talk about him now we're going to talk about him next month yes have we got any closing things that we need to talk about first? I think people should reevaluate Genesis. It's not quite as bad as his reputation. <laughs> That's the tagline for the episode. Genesis are not as bad yes. as you think. <laughs> <laughs> that or Wolf's Tweet. Wolf's Tweet pajamas. pajamas. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway. Thank you for listening this month. Uh, you can find us online at Beyond Farpoint on Twitter. Podchaser, Facebook and Instagram. Where can we find you, Baz? On Twitter, you can find me at Baz Greenland. And you can find me, Jeff Owen, at NCC underscore 17 Formula 1. But in the meantime, thank you for joining us and we'll see you again next month. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Let's see what's out there. Engage. This show is brought to you by Holosuite Media. Computer, list other available Holosuite Media programs. Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4, The Janeway, a Star Trek Voyager podcast. Yeah, so then he replays the last entry on the computer, and it's Janeway, saying that they need to abandon ship. Uh... I have issue with this. Okay. Because it's it's a captain's log, whatever. Mm-hmm. When is she ever, like, standing in front of a camera giving a captain's log? This is Captain Janeway for BBC News. <laughs> I mean, she's clearly on the middle of the bridge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What's recording her at this point? Chakotay, hey, get the emergency camera rig. <laughs> <laughs> Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4, The Sci-Fi Feminist, a feminism and pop culture podcast. So... 
um, she has makeup on, but it's bright red with black like eyeshadow and like long talon nails. And I'm so happy to see Cruella Deville did have her talons because even in the 101 Dalmatians film, something that's very prominent, oh, I think it's 102 Dalmatians, when she tur turns back to an insane person, like her shoulder pads come out of nowhere and her nails grow. And I'm just like, that's, that's the female grotesque. Like you take this normal woman who is feminine and then you're like, doublet <laughs> and then add talons. <laughs> Computer, deactivate Holosuite.